Jacob said God was the God who called him to return to the land in order that he may do good to Jacob. This is an act of faith. He acknowledges that God exists and that God is the one who called Jacob to return. And as Jacob returns to the promised land, he is acting out his faith. Had he not believed God, he wouldn't have returned to the land. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In this episode, I'll continue my survey of Genesis by looking at chapters 32 to 35. But let me very quickly review to get us up to speed. God created all things without sin, but Adam violated the holy law of God, bringing in the fall of mankind. God then promised Satan that he would destroy him, and Satan is the main target of God's justice. Throughout Genesis, we see God implementing his plan to defeat Satan as the story of Genesis unfolds. God took hundreds of years before Abraham arrived on the scene. In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to the promised land and made a promise to him. God would make him a great nation, and through him, the nations would be blessed. Through Abraham, the seed of the woman who would defeat Satan would come. Now, as we survey Genesis, we have to keep in mind that God is not in a hurry. So God took 25 years before he gave Abraham the son that he promised. Then years later, his son Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. However, Jacob conspired with his mother to receive the blessing from Isaac. Because of this, Esau wanted to kill Jacob, so Isaac sent Jacob to Rachel's brother Laban. And after a course of many years, Jacob left Laban's home in order to return to the land God was going to give him and his offspring. However, there was an obstacle in the way, his brother Esau. Now, 20 years later, Jacob returned to his homeland, but he must confront his brother. What's God going to do? He's the one bringing him back to this place. Is God going to give Jacob over to Esau to be killed? That brings us to Genesis chapter 32, which begins by stating that the angels of God met Jacob. Then Jacob said, this is God's camp. Therefore, he called the place Mahanaim. This place is Jacob, east of the Jordan River, which flows from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And this spot where Jacob was located is in present-day Jordan. Jacob then sent messengers ahead to find Esau in Edom, which is south of the Dead Sea. He had his messengers tell Esau of Jacob's prosperity, hoping to find favor with Esau. When the messengers returned, they told Jacob that Esau was coming to meet him, and he was bringing 400 men. What would you be thinking if you heard that the brother who wanted to kill you was coming to meet you with 400 men? I would think that he's wanting to exact revenge. And that's exactly what Jacob was thinking because he prayed that God would deliver him from Esau. Look at verse 11. He was afraid that Esau would attack him. At this point, I want to analyze Jacob's prayer. First, how does he address God? He calls him the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. At this point, Isaac is still alive, but Abraham is not. So why is this a big deal? Isn't Jacob simply saying that God is the God whom Abraham and Isaac believed in? Well, Jesus answers this question for us. Take a look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 29 to 33. Here, Jesus is talking about the resurrection, but look at what he says in verses 31 and 32. And this is what it says. And as for the resurrection of the dead, 
Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is the God of Abraham, not he was the God of Abraham. This implies that Abraham is alive, though he died physically. That's the point that Jesus is making. God is not the God of the dead, even though Abraham physically died. He's the God of the living. So from this, we know that Abraham is alive, though physically dead. Will he remain like that forever, spiritually alive, with no body? No, there's coming a day when the spiritually dead will rise from the dead and enter glory with God forever in body and soul. That means when you die, your body will cease to live as your soul is separated from your body, but your soul will be ushered into the presence of God, and you will wait till the resurrection. You will die physically, but you will continue to live spiritually. When God makes you alive spiritually in this life, your eternal life has begun. Though you will physically die, you won't die spiritually. And just as Abraham didn't die spiritually when he died physically, nevertheless, we will live with God forever in body and soul when Jesus returns and calls us from our graves. Coming back to Genesis chapter 32, in verse 9, Jacob said that God was the God who called him to return to the land in order that he may do good to Jacob. Jacob said God was the God who called him to return to the land in order that he may do good to Jacob. This is an act of faith. He acknowledges that God exists and that God is the one who called Jacob to return. And as Jacob returns to the promised land, he is acting out his faith. Had he not believed God, he wouldn't have returned to the land. Next, look at the humility in verse 10. There it says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. This is how we're supposed to approach God, with humility. Jacob acknowledged that God is God and he is not. Jacob also acknowledged that God caused him to be prosperous. Listen to what Jesus says about being humble. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, he says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, he says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is an important element in the Christian life. God loves a humble heart, and Jacob approached God with humility. Third, Jacob held God to his promise. Jacob reminded God that he said to him, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. We see that in verse 12. So if God promised to do him good and make his offspring numerous, then certainly God will deliver Jacob from Esau. This too is important concerning prayer. Hold God to his promises. Now this may sound self-centered and perhaps even a little like a spoiled brat. However, holding God to his promises is an act of faith. When you do this, you prove that you believe the promise and you believe that God will deliver on his promise. Returning to the storyline, Jacob prepared to meet Esau. He planned to appease him with gifts of livestock. He sent the gift forward with his servants, who were to present the gifts to Esau, and inform him they were from Jacob and that he was behind them. He then sent two more waves of servants with the same instructions. 
That same night, Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him till the break of day. When the man saw that he didn't prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip and put it out of joint. Then the man told Jacob to let him go, but Jacob said he would not do that until he blessed him. Remember what I said about holding God to his promise? It seems Jacob is doing something very much like that. The man asked Jacob what his name was, and he told him. Then the man changed his name to Israel because he had striven with God and men and prevailed. Afterward, the man blessed Jacob. Jacob called the place Peniel. Now, Moses mentions that the people of Israel don't eat the sinew of the thigh because of this event when Jacob wrestled with God. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis hundreds of years after Jacob died, and he's connecting that tradition with this event in history. Furthermore, it's important to emphasize here that the man was God. That's why Jacob called the place Peniel, the face of God. In this event, we see God in human form, and this should remind us instantly of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. And how do we know that this was God? First, the man touched his hip and threw it out of joint. Second, the man blessed Jacob. And then third, Jacob named the place Peniel. So this is an instance where we see God in bodily form. And Jacob knew he was wrestling with God because he asked him to bless him. Furthermore, the name of that place indicates that he knew he saw God face to face. I think it's significant that this event occurred between Jacob's anticipation of meeting Esau and his actual meeting with Esau. Perhaps there's more to this event, but in a nutshell, God ensured Jacob that he would protect and bless him concerning his encounter with Esau. And we see this encounter in Genesis chapter 33. When Jacob and Esau met, they embraced one another and wept. It seems Esau was not filled with vengeance after all. When Esau saw those with Jacob, he inquired who they were. Jacob humbly credited God with his family according to God's grace. Esau then asked about the gifts Jacob presented to him. Jacob said he was offering this to Esau in order to find favor with him. Was Jacob bribing Esau or was he genuinely trying to repay him for buying his birthright and stealing the blessing? Jacob was humble here. It seems that he was really trying to make amends for his past actions. However, Esau declines Jacob's offering because he had plenty. He didn't need Jacob's gift. But Jacob persisted and persuaded him to receive his gifts. Now, I want to point something out here. If you notice, Jacob credited God with his prosperity. God graciously gave him all that he had. Esau, on the other hand, didn't. He simply said he had enough. Why do I bring this up? Within the sovereignty of God and by his promise, Jacob received the birthright and blessing. Why is that? We'll take a look at Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. There, Malachi says that God loved Jacob but hated Esau. So why didn't Esau credit God with his prosperity? He had no relationship with God. Now, maybe you think it's inappropriate for God to love Jacob and hate Esau. I mean, Esau seems like a pretty nice guy. However, as God told Moses, God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and God will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. We see that in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. So God obviously chose not to have mercy on Esau. Was Esau prosperous by the sovereignty of God? Absolutely. But you see this disconnect. 
we see no indication that Esau acknowledged God and his sovereignty for his prosperity. Does this seem unfair that God would be gracious to one and not another? That God would love one and hate another? Well, it can't be unfair. God is good, right, and just. And God is God. He gets to show mercy on whomever he chooses. He gets to have mercy on one and not another. Furthermore, Esau's response concerning his prosperity hints that he had no desire to honor God. After all, his heart is set against God, and the Spirit of God did not change his heart. So after Jacob and Esau met, they went their separate ways. Esau went back to Edom, and Jacob went to Sukkoth, which was west of Peniel, but east of the Jordan. From there, Jacob went west of the Jordan to Shechem and purchased a piece of land and built an altar to God there, naming it God is the God of Israel. Once again, Jacob revealed his faith and appreciation for what God has done for him. Moving on to Genesis chapter 34, we see a disturbing story. Shechem, the prince of the land, seized Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and laid with her. He then asked his father to get her to be his wife. Now, Jacob heard that Shechem defiled his daughter. And later, Shechem's father came to talk to Jacob concerning Dinah. When Jacob's sons heard what had happened, they were indignant and angry because of what Shechem had done. Shechem's father pleaded with Jacob to allow his son to marry Dinah. However, Jacob's sons spoke deceitfully to Shechem and his father. They said they could not let Dinah marry Shechem because he was uncircumcised. So Shechem, his father, and every male were circumcised. And while they were still sore from the procedure, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, killed all the males in Shechem and his father. Afterward, they took Dinah out of their house. Then the sons of Jacob plundered the city. When Jacob heard what Simeon and Levi had done, he chastised them. Because of their actions, Jacob was now a target of the people of Canaan. However, they defended their actions because of what Shechem had done. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out here concerning this story. Many years later, when Jacob was about to die, he spoke to his sons concerning what would happen. We see this in Genesis chapter 49. When he spoke to Simeon and Levi, he had this event in view. Listen to what he says in verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willingness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. However, we see something interesting several hundred years later. The descendants of Levi would become the priests of Israel. In fact, Moses, who wrote Genesis, was from the tribe of Levi. Think about that. Jacob had harsh words for Simeon and Levi for what they had done, yet from Levi comes the priesthood of Israel. Now, the priests were the ones who served as mediators between God and Israel. They were the ones who went to God on behalf of the people. I find it interesting how God incorporates wicked people into his plan. We find this throughout history. Abraham and Isaac lied about their wives to save themselves. Jacob deceived his brother to receive the blessing. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, murdered a man, yet God called him to lead the people out of Egypt. Through David, Christ would come, even though David committed adultery with a woman and had her husband killed. Rahab was a prostitute, yet she's in the line of Christ. 
Ruth is a descendant of Moab, the son of Lot and his daughter, yet she too is in the line of Christ. God blesses and works through ungodly people throughout history. After all, what else does he have to work with? And moving on to chapter 35, God called Jacob to move to Bethel and dwell there. God told him to make an altar there. Do you remember Bethel? God reminds him that it's the place where God appeared to him when he ran from Esau. That was the place where Jacob had a dream of the ladder reaching to heaven. So Jacob told his household to put away their false gods, purify themselves, and change their garments. Then they would be on their way to Bethel so Jacob could build an altar to God. But look at how Jacob describes God. The God who answered him in the day of his distress. The God who had been with him wherever he had gone. I think there's something else important to point out here. First, we see a picture of repentance. Jacob told his household to put away their false gods, to purify themselves, and to change their garments. So we see a turning away from our idolatry, a turning away from sin. Second, God gives us a picture of salvation. In other words, Jacob's household acted out what salvation looks like, a turning from false gods, a purification or a removal of sin, a change of clothing, a renewal, if you will. Years later, Isaiah would mention something very similar. Look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now we have to be careful here. Our tendency is to read Genesis chapter 35 and make the assumption that our salvation is dependent on us. But remember, salvation is a work of God, and Isaiah supports this. God is the one who covered him with the robes of righteousness. So as Jacob's family turned from their false gods, purified themselves, and changed their garments, God is acting out what he does to us in our salvation. He causes us to turn from our false gods and turn to him. He purifies us with the blood of Christ, and he clothes us with Christ's righteousness. And then also, we see this idea of headship develop. Just as Adam represented the entire human race, meaning all mankind fell with Adam's disobedience, Jacob represented his household. They went through the ceremony of repentance because of Jacob's faith. Obviously, many of them were still holding on to their false gods. Yet, because of their association with Jacob, they followed his instructions based on his faith. Headship is an important concept in Christianity. We are fallen in Adam, who is our federal head. Yet, we are saved in Christ, who is our federal head. Finally, we continue to see Jacob's humility and faith grow. If we were to compare him from the day that he deceived Isaac to this point in his life, we would see a completely different person. Well, Jacob's household complied and they went to Bethel and he built an altar there. And a terror from God fell on the cities, so they left Jacob alone. God then appeared to Jacob again, and he reiterated that he changed his name to Israel. He did that in Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob wrestled with God. Then God called him to be fruitful and multiply. This reminds us of the creation story when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Or the repopulation of the earth following the flood when God told Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply. 
It seems that God is instituting another creation story, and indeed he is. He will make a great nation from Jacob, and through the line of Jacob, Christ would come and rescue sinners. The king of kings will come from Jacob and call a people to himself. This is part of the new creation. And this new creation, Jacob's household acted out prior to coming to Bethel. God then told Jacob that kings will come from him. And if we were to fast forward, we would see those kings. And through the line of King David, Christ, the king of kings, would be born. Finally, God told Jacob that he would give him and his offspring this land that he promised to Abraham and Isaac. Jacob then set up a pillar and poured a drink offering and oil on it. And in the remainder of Genesis chapter 35, we see the deaths of Rachel and Isaac. Rachel died while giving birth to Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. So God continued to move his plan to defeat Satan forward. He made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation, and we see the beginning of that. His grandson Jacob had 12 sons, and through these sons would come millions of people. However, more importantly, through one of these sons would come the Savior of the world. So as God promised, through Abraham the nations would be blessed. Not only that, Abraham has millions of descendants of the faith. These are really the numerous offspring that God had in mind. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Then in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Furthermore, through Abraham, the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 would come. Jesus Christ is that seed of the woman, and he was born through the line of Abraham. God was active in fulfilling his promise to defeat Satan, and as we work our way through the book of Genesis, we see him slowly unfolding his plan to bring Christ to defeat Satan. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.